Welcome back to the 13th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be going through some stories that pertain to the future of America, whether that be the Democratic Party, the decay of federalism, and the most interesting one, in my opinion, a discussion about meta and immersive rights. And if you don't know what that is, trust me, (laughs) we'll talk about it a lot. And of course, we'll end today with The Daily Delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now that's enough rambling for me. Let's get into our first story, or our first discussion more accurately. So I wanted to ask you, the viewer, what do you see the future of the, the Democratic Party being? How, how do you see it panning out? Obviously, we have our 2022 elections coming up here in the next few... Actually, at this point, we're talking about a month and a half, if not less than that. So this is obviously a time when people are speculating, oh, there's going to be a red wave, there's going to be a blue wave. And I don't want to get into that specifically. I, I think that that's been covered enough. You get enough of that inundated, inundated by enough of that in normal news nowadays, mainly because, you know, those kind of headlines lead. What I want to talk about is the 2024 election, the presidential election. If you didn't see on 60 Minutes, Joe Biden stated that he is not 100% committed to running for office in 2024. Now, this is different than his comments in the past, where he said that he intends to run, but he never gave a hundred percent confirmation saying, Oh yes, I will lead the party into another Joe Biden presidency. So that asks the question or it makes a lot of people, a lot of pundits think, well, who's going to be the next, the next leader, at least on the national stage of the democratic party. And that's a question I have for you guys, the viewers. I'm curious to hear other people's opinions because Right now, I don't see a clear a clear person that they can turn to. I think there are three main people that they would put up in 2024, or at least the lead up to 2024, that are viable and do not hurt their strategic position. So that would be Pete Buttigieg. Right now, he's the transportation secretary. He's not playing an extremely pivotal role in either the House or the Senate. So losing him would not be a bad thing. He is a gay man. He has uh, mayor experience, and now he's also spent time on the cabinet of a president. So these sort of things kind of lend to people thinking maybe he could be a possible candidate. And I don't disagree. I don't think he'll go over well. Um, I think that the right will see him as, oh, he's gay, so... He's a political pawn. They're just trying to pander to a certain population. And I think the left sees some of his policies and says that he doesn't necessarily go far enough, at least the progressive left. And then the center left looks at him and says, yeah, but I don't know about his track record. He's not as storied as Joe Biden was. He doesn't have that long um, stint in the Senate, or maybe he hasn't been a governor and hasn't had the same time you know, running a state, that's a big deal. Running a state and running a nation, though they're not similar, they have a lot of things in common. You are the head of the government. 
Everything passes through you. You set legislation. You build connections between the different parties. You make sure that things get passed the way that they should inside the legislator. And you have a lot of sway. And some people may say that he's not ready for that because he hasn't had that experience. So I think that kind of crosses him off the list, though I think he will run. I don't know if he'll necessarily make it. I think his political capital has kind of been gone ever since the failure of the administration when it comes to the supply chain shortage, which is something that as the Department of uh, Transportation Secretary, he should be addressing. You know, I don't know if people necessarily want to keep him in for that. I feel I feel like he hasn't done the best job he could, and people have seen that. And then also his stint taking maternity leave, I think people aren't necessarily happy with him taking all that extra time to be out on maternity, sorry, paternity leave and not addressing the supply chain shortage that we're going through. It should be nation, especially when you're in that position, it should be nation, nation over family. And I'm sorry, that, that probably sounds terrible, but when you're in elected office, I take that back, in the case of Pete Buttigieg, he's a cabinet member, so he was selected by Joe Biden. But when you're in that position at one of the most crucial pieces of our government, I'm sorry, if you're in there, you should probably be focusing on what our country needs and how to make the day life of everyday citizens better rather than going home and saying, oh, hey, honey, did you did you feed the babies properly? Oh, wait, did you breastfeed them? Oh, wait, no, sorry, we're both guys. We can't breastfeed them. I mean... It's one of those those things where it really brings into question, what are you doing for us? What, what are you actually doing that's helping America? And then the next obvious candidate is Kamala Harris. And when I say obvious candidate, that's because she's had a stint in the Senate. She was a prosecutor in California. She's a woman who's African-American. So that definitely checks off some boxes saying we can have the first woman and woman Afro-American president in the White House. That's a moment of progress. And I think a lot of Democrats like that idea that we're making America more equitable and we're making it a place where anybody can succeed. And any young black girl could look up to Kamala Harris and say, I want to be president one day. So I think though it may be identity politics playing at that, I think it's a very important piece of the way the Democrats view, or at least some people on that side of the aisle, maybe progressives, maybe some liberals, view politics, which is that the people at the head of government should reflect the population. And then the fourth part is she's vice president. Biden was vice president under Obama. It's kind of a, it's a stepping stone. It proves that you still got some chops and that you can be in the nation's eye. You don't necessarily take on so much responsibility as the president, but you're still forced to deal with very pressing issues and deal with the media and the constant criticism and also have to listen to your party. So these are kind of pieces of experience that could be useful and could be viewed as such when it comes to, oh, maybe she should run. Do I think she will win? I think she'll have the exact same result that she had when she was running in 2020. She'll get pretty far. And then she'll slip up or she'll make a evil-sounding chuckle, as she is prone to do. 
and she'll probably have to drop out and support somebody else. I don't see her as a viable candidate. Like I just mentioned, she has plenty of experience, and she may even have the backing of some people in the party. But when it comes to her sitting down and having interviews and talking to some of these reporters or even some of her curated speeches, she fumbles so much. She doesn't have that prestige and that refined feeling that you kind of got from other politicians on the campaign trail. No, I mean, don't get me wrong. I didn't love Cory Booker. Um, I didn't love Joe Biden at some points. And I didn't necessarily love Elizabeth Warren. But they've all been in this game so long, and they're refined, and they have a way of speaking to the people, and they kind of move past just the talking points and appeal to empathy in a way that Kamala Harris doesn't. Ever since Tulsi completely skewered her on her record in California, people have not viewed her the same. And then we have our last candidate, who I think is the most likely candidate, And that's what this article from Fox News is talking about here today. It's Gavin Newsom. But before we get into the video, if you've made it this far, give the video a like, maybe subscribe. really helps the channel grow. All right. So we have this article from Fox News. And they go through and they are asking people from California whether they think that Gavin Newsom would be a good president. Uh, one person, Susan from San Francisco, said, I think it's great. I think he is a great governor, and I think he would be an incredible president. But on the other end of the spectrum, we have Keith, who said, quote, Newsom presidency would be, quote, absolutely horrible. Quote, he is just a complete hypocrite, end quote. And I think that that's one problem that a lot of voters who may look at Newsom are going to think about. They're going to think about his record throughout COVID. They're going to say, oh, well, you told us that we needed to mask up, but you were out at dinner, maskless. Oh, you said that public schools should be shut down, but your kids are currently attending a private school where they're able to go back in person to a limited degree. So these sort of questions are really going to get brought up when people think, ah, Gavin Newsom, would he be, would he be a good candidate? Would he be the person that I want in office? And while I think his hypocrisy in some cases is not okay, obviously, I do think that he has the experience needed. Whether you like how California is governed, whether you think their policies are great, especially this new one that came out a few weeks ago where they're trying to force everybody to have an electric car by 2035 and they can't even support their current operating electricity. Uh, That's why they had a rollout, a blackout nearly a week after they proposed that bill. So how do you propose that you'll charge all these new electric cars? You know, it's it's an important question and you need that kind of foresight When you're a president, at least he has been in a position of high pressure, dealing with the media, dealing with the legislator of California, having to broker deals between different parties, and also sometimes take a hardline response and say, no, this is how we're going to go about doing it. And we need someone who's a little bit younger than Joe Biden. We need someone that's strong, competent, and also can portray a strong image on the world stage. And one of those things that kind of lends me to think that he's a, he's a person who's not really going to back down. 
and he's a person who is very bold, is his running ad campaigns in other states. He's running ad, ad campaigns in Texas, Florida. I'm pretty sure he saw, I saw one that came out of Ohio uh, saying, come to California. If you don't like your governance, if you want democratic governance and you want to be able to have an abortion, come to California. Though that seems like a political stunt, and it is, it's a bold move. Advertising in other states in order to get your message across, in order to get people to come to your state, and also it builds his national recognition. Whether you like it or not, Democrats in Florida may say, oh, yeah, yeah, I've seen ads from Newsom. I, I see what he's doing. I know that he supports some of the things that I support. Let's, let's look into him a little bit more. Let's see if he's worth it. So he's, he's playing it smart right now. And he kind of has this, this moment in the spotlight. And in politics, timing and political capital are really, really crucial. If you look at De- Ron DeSantis right now, he is in a gubernatorial race. So he's doing the, if you've seen in the news, the migrants that he shipped to Martha's Vineyard. It is a p- brilliant political move. It addresses a key issue that he's talking about, immigration, it shows the hypocrisy or the failings of certain dem- Democratic politicians. And it also builds his name nationally because this gives national attention. So it is a beautiful strategic move. And Newsom's trying to play that same game. He's actually been doing it a little bit longer than DeSantis has. So both of these candidates, they are trying to play the long game here. They're trying to make it so that they are nationally recognizable. I'm not saying Ron DeSantis is going to run, and at this point we don't know if Newsom's going to run, because if Biden runs, then it's probably unlikely that anybody will challenge him. But they are both using this timing in the national spotlight, and they're not letting it wane. So I think both of them are great candidates, or at least they have the popularity behind them. They have the experience as governors. And I think it would be really interesting to see them on the debate stage, see a Newsom versus DeSantis. I don't know. I feel like Newsom's a little a little wormy, but he can still be smart, intellectual. And Ron DeSantis can come off blunt and a little bit mean, which may not be the best image that you want on a debate stage. You kind of want to be gubernatorial, presidential, refined. But they're both very smart people from what I can see, and I think a debate between them would be really interesting, and honestly, I'm hoping for it. But we can use this time to uh, the pivot to a second topic that I want to talk about today. A different article that I was reading from the, let me pull it up here to make sure I don't get it wrong, The New Republic, Are State Governments Too Powerful? So The New Republic puts out a podcast called... Um, Everything politics, yes, the politics of everything. And they have two hosts that invite guests on. And this week they were talking about the power of state governments and has American federalism broken down. And they raise a lot of important questions and big ideas here. Has federalism fallen apart? Are there really any local, quote-unquote, issues anymore? And... They also bring up that Republicans have been playing the long game, which is something you don't hear very often. Normally you hear the Republican failings because it is, to some degree, a really national news cycle. Even local news organizations pick up national issues, and they always talk about the Republican Party falling behind. They're not strong enough. 
But this article and the podcast bring up a point that the Republicans have really been playing the long game when it comes to state legislators. So I think it's a, an interesting question. Has federalism fallen apart in America? And one of the first things that they talk about, the first person they have on, Jacob Gumbrack, uh, I'll actually quote the article here. Jacob Gumbrack, the author of the new book, Laboratories Against Democracy. Jake, the title of your book is playing on the idea articulated by Supreme Court Justice Louis Brendez that states are laboratories of democracy. What did he mean by that? And what is a laboratory of democracy meant to be? And Jacob gives a good answer, but I'll summarize. It's that each state is a place where we try different types of legislation. We test things out like in a laboratory. Are they good? Are they bad? Do they provide benefits to our citizens or overall are they detrimental? And then other states see those policies and adopt them. And then at the same thing goes for the national level. If the Republican Party at the national level says, wow, I really like what you're doing in Arkansas. How do we implement that on the national level? So basically these states are a place to experiment. There's local, more confined groups that tend to be a little bit more like-minded than the rest of the nation and you can test out these policies. And that's a lot of what federalism had become, where they're, everything's separated. You know, we're still one nation, but a lot more power lies with the states to have more important laws and more focused uh, legislation and statutes in order to protect the citizens and see what best suits that kind of population. And then when you go to the national level, you bring that along with you and you have a debate. Say, no, no, but this policy didn't work. We tried it in our state and it didn't work. So we have to try something different. And then you kind of mix, mix match all of them together to make this beautiful bill that works for everybody. And as we know, on the national level, that is not happening anymore. The people are towing their party lines. They're so ingrained. Oh, I'm Democrat. Oh, I'm Republican. That means I have to take this policy position. I have to take this policy position. No longer are we in the era of Clinton when, oh, I'll walk across the aisle and I will make the Republicans see that my point of view is okay. If you can't tell, that's a terrible, terrible Bill Clinton, but I just had to. But no longer are we in that time when people are willing to come together because they're so entrenched in their party line on the national level. What the article argues here is that it's actually trickling down to the state level as well, that in states no longer are we experimenting, but rather, oh, the national party has a position? Okay, how do we back it? How do we implement that in our state? And the great example they give is abortion. Um, Dobbs really shifted the position of a lot of people in this country. And quickly after Dobbs, state legislators moved to either outright ban abortion or put more restrictive limits on it. So this Dobbs issue has really woken people up to how the Republicans have been playing the long game because you've seen a lot of this uh, SNAP regulation or a lot of legislators move very quickly on these issues. And it's kind of caused some Democrats to wake up and say, wow, 
the Republicans have really locked in some of these legislators uh, in st- on the state level, or they have governors in place that are pushing certain policies. So it, it's kind of made people realize, hey, the Republicans have been playing the long game. The argument they make in the article with their second guest, Alex, I believe, Kingston, is that since the 70s, the Democrats have been really focusing on the national level, They've been trying to, you know, constantly win the Senate and the House of Representatives at the federal level. But Republicans have been taking a more state approach. They've been putting politicians in place in these states. They've been putting more funding into state races. They've also been using their time in those state legislators to, as the article puts it, gerrymander certain districts so they can kind of lock in their advantage. And gerrymandering has been a thing forever. I don't think it's necessarily okay, but demographics shift. So we can't have a static system that's, oh, this county is this many votes. This county is that many votes. We can't have a system like that because the population is always moving around. It's always changing, and demographics are never going to be the same. So unfortunately, gerrymandering, or at least redistricting in the way we have it, is probably one of the better systems in place and it's worked for a long time now is there a way to take advantage of it of course there always will be no matter what system we come up with there will be people that find a way to take advantage but it happens in democratic states as well not just republican ones in california they've locked up the state legislator for years upon years and the Republican minority does not get much of a voice. Now, there are Republican legislators and there are senators that are Republican from California, but they don't ever get enough of a majority in that legislator to actually affect real change and change the direction, at least nowadays. It was different in the late 90s, but ever since 2000 and from then on, they've had control. And with that control, normally you would think, okay, we can enact certain policies that are beneficial to the people that elected us. Oh, we're going to, in Republican states, we're going to lower corporate taxes, we're going to lower income tax, and in Democratic states, we think that in order to be more equitable, we're going to raise taxes on the rich and corporations. You think that that idea where these states would be you know, controlled by certain legislators, they would be able to test out different policies that could be implemented on the national scale if done right, or they could also test policies that completely fail, and then we could say, okay, hey, we don't need to do that. And that would be the beauty of federalism. But, like I said earlier, nowadays everybody's so caught up in this, oh, check-the-box Republican, check-the-box Democrat, so that now... Instead of, oh, let's test out a different progressive tax system. It's, no, no, no. How do we make the most progressive tax system? Because that is what we are talking about on the national stage. That's what the National Democratic Party wants. So how do we implement it here at home? Or, oh, the National Republican Party says that abortion is wrong on all moral levels and all ethical levels. How do we best implement that? Rather than having a middle-of-the-ground approach and finding something that works best, finding those exemptions medically when a mother does need to have an abortion and not make it such a uh, terrible process for some of these mothers who are in Texas, Oklahoma, and other states that have outright banned abortion, that you know it's a pain in the ass to get some of these procedures even when it is medically necessary. 
Now, do I think that is as big of a problem as some of the news articles I've been reading over the last few weeks have made it? No, it's a very small portion of the society. We've worked tremendously over the last 50 years on improving the resources that mothers have in order to have a safe and healthy pregnancy. But that doesn't mean there aren't exceptions that need to be addressed. And at the state level, that's the way to do it. You can have a more nuanced bill and you can try different approaches easier than you can try them on the national level where resources, one, are more limited. Two, also, it's hard to apply a sweeping legislation across the entire nation that applies to everybody. It's much easier to do on a local level. And the Democrats, like I said, they've been waking up to the fact that the Republicans have control over these state legislators. And the last guest brought up a very interesting point. When asked what can Democrats do, he said, and I quote, I've seen a lot of groups that maybe weren't as focused on states in the past really care about them now. And it's not just the groups. It's also rank and file activists. People know how important these are. If you live in one of these states that has a state legislator that could go to either party or where the supermajority means a lot, going door to door and talking to your neighbors is a huge deal. And it's things that you can do that's free of cost to you. But if you want to give money, visit statesproject.org. We have a lot of different ways for you to get involved. And this is a project that is specifically addressing that Democrats are behind in state legislators. So if that's something that you're interested in and you want to get involved, you can go there. They probably have lots of great resources. I haven't done independent research uh, research on this website itself. But I think that, honestly, we should have more competition on state levels because it's going to cause these stuck-in rhino Republicans or even in Democratic states, the stuck-in Democrats, to really question their positions if they can't just rely on always getting into office and say, what is going to best suit the people that have elected me? And what's going to make them want to vote for me in the future? And it it actually spurs competition. And as a business major, competition causes things to improve. And you know what? That's actually a good segment. Speaking of business and competition, our last article that I want to talk about here today has something to do with the metaverse. A new new business model is emerging. And the headline reads, The Case for Demanding Immersive Rights in the Metaverse. So this talks about how... Actually, I'll quote the author here. Quote, a recent study in McKinsey found that many consumers expect to spend more than four hours a day in the metaverse within the next five years. A little bit later on, he does define the metaverse, saying, quote, the metaverse represents a broad societal shift in how we engage in digital content, going from flat media viewed in third person to immersive experiences engaged in the first person, end quote. So it's a societal shift I think that's an interesting way of framing it personally. I see it as a tool or a place to get away, but that's because I haven't been inside the metaverse. I haven't seen how useful it is. I do think it's scary, if I'm going to be honest, that people want to spend more than four hours in the metaverse or they think they're going to spend more than four hours 
within the next five years, that's not that far away. And the real concern for me here, which is brought up in the article, is in order to interact in an AR, so augmented reality, or VR, virtual reality world, you have to give a huge amount of data to these companies. If it's AR, they have to know your location. They have to be able to see what you're seeing. They also have to be able to track your eyes so they know where you're looking in order to display certain things to you. For VR, it's exactly the same. In order to project what you are looking like and what emotions you're displaying, if you're smiling, if you're laughing, in order to make VR immersive, they have to track your facial muscles and display that in a virtual world. So there's a lot of data that's required in order for you to interact with these worlds and to make them the best experience possible. And that's great. If you're willing to give up some privacy or you're willing to give over some data to these companies, then, of, of course, go for it. But that can lead to some very, very dangerous situations. I mean, if you think about it, if a company can track your facial muscles while you're doing something, they can analyze the micro expressions that you make. So small little changes that you don't even notice. They can track that and then put it into an emotional profile. And this is something that the author, um, let me find his name here, Lewis Rosberg. So Lewis Rosberg brings up a lot of great points here, which is they can track your micro expressions. They can see how you react to certain things. They can analyze your emotions and then, oh, okay, he had a happy response to when he saw that Coca-Cola ad or he really liked that one product that his friend was showing him. Let me give him a targeted ad that is more likely to work. And, you know, that sounds great as a, as a business person. Oh, okay, extremely targeted ads, more efficiency. And then I know that my ad dollars, the money I'm paying in order to place that ad is actually going to work better. But at some point, if you're able to understand the emotions of somebody and understand, oh, that emotion I see on his face right now. Oh, okay, that's, that's the sadness. Let me adjust my strategy real quick. Because more than likely, these products will be sold by AIs. And these AIs can think and process information 10 times, if not a trillion times that faster than we are. We can. So if they see a small change in your micro expression, they might alter the interaction. For the most part, you may be having a conversation with an AI salesperson that you don't even know is an AI salesperson. And they could be changing the conversation, changing the way they're trying to persuade you ever so slightly if they notice changes in your emotions. And that at that point, it goes beyond persuasion. As the author says, it could be actively manipulation. And I don't disagree. Like I just said, these AIs can process information a thousand times faster. And if they have all the data about you, where you normally go, what you normally look at, how you respond to things you look at, they can better custom tailor their products that they're selling to you. And it's just extremely scary in my mind. So immersive rights is a concept that Rosenberg talks about that we should have two basic rights in the metaverse. There are actually three, but I think two are really important. One, just like in the real world, for the most part, we should know when we're being advertised to. 
if you're watching TV and it's not the TV show and a Pepsi ad comes on TV, you know that this is paid product placement. And even in movies nowadays, when you see the logo of a company on screen, at least in my mind, the first thing is, oh, wow, Coca-Cola must have paid a lot of money in order to get that in there. Or, oh, wow, they're driving an Aston Martin, like in all the James Bond movies. Okay, then Aston Martin's paying some really good money to place their product there. But what the author brings up is imagine that you are, quote, walking down the street in a realistic virtual or augmented world. You notice a car parked there that you've never seen before. As you pass, you overhear the owner telling a friend how much they love the car. You keep walking, subconsciously influenced by what you believe was an authentic experience. What you don't realize is that that encounter was promotional. So they could plant small little environmental things that, oh, wow, this new drink, I really love it. And you may have no idea that's an advertisement. So what he's saying is we should have some sort of indicator that, oh, hey, this is an advertisement. Oh, there's like a little line above it or a little text bubble that says, oh, advertisement placed here by blah, 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 which I think is very important. And the second part of that, which goes back to when I was talking about how companies can track your face and the emotions you display, is that companies should not be allowed to create an emotional profile of you, which I think is extremely important. They should be able to use that data live time in order to display your face to somebody else if you're in a VR world, but they shouldn't be able to keep that data on a server somewhere and build a profile around you. And, you know, that makes sense to some some degree. Think about LiDAR on the Apple phone. It actively tracks your face, even though it's not the best thing in the world. If you want to send a cute little koala to somebody, you can send a cute little koala that mimics your face, and then it's done. It's not saving that information. It's not keeping a profile. Oh, he was happy when he said this. He was blah, blah, blah when he said this. It's just actively tracking it, displaying it, and then it's done. The only other thing that's saved is in the messages where you sent it to that person. Apple's not keeping that data, so why does Facebook or any other company that is creating these systems need to keep that data? So I think that's a very, very interesting point about immersive rights, and it really has a lot to do with our future, unfortunately. We're going into a world where the metaverse is just going to be part of every single day life. So... With that said, we can move on from the, the topics that are a little bit sadder, that aren't as happy, and we can move on to our, quote, daily delight. Uh, it comes from India Today. This video of a dog feeding carrots to rabbits and a pig is too cute to handle. I watched it. Oh, my goodness. It, it, it is really, really cute. This dog is serving up some five-star carrots to these guys, and they are absolutely eating it up. Uh, quote, so... A dog gave a lesson in kindness when it fed a few rabbits and pigs with carrots. So sweet, no? The video was shared on Twitter and has gone viral online with close to 8 million likes. The adorable clip features the shaggy dog feeding a few rabbits and a pig with carrots. While the doggo held the carrots in its mouth, the rabbits and pig nibbled on them. We are telling you that this video is just too cute to handle. And my favorite comment from one of the Twitter uh, video retweets was, aw, cute factor turned up to 11, and I can't disagree. 
If you want to see any of the videos from this Daily Delight or any of the other articles that I mentioned, there will be a link in the description below that like and subscribe button. And with that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.